This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. guest today on the podcast is Corey King, uh, founder, owner, co-owner of Side Project Brewing in Maplewood, Missouri. We are here at the beautiful uh, Spruce Point Inn Resort in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, overlooking the bay with lobster uh, boats uh, driving by us. So if you hear some noises in the background, that's that's what it could be, or uh, you know, sailboats or whatnot. Corey's joined us at the Brewers Retreat here, the Craft Beer and Brewing Brewers Retreat at Booth Bay Harbor. And has just brewed two batches of beer with a group here. And uh, what was the experience like uh, brewing on a homebrew scale system? Brewing one of your classic grisette recipes, uh, you know, with a, with a group of uh, you know, fifteen brewers. No, yeah, it was it was uh, it was great. I'm, I'm they helped me more than probably I helped them uh, to to some extent on the equipment side. But uh, that was good. I, I started as a home brewer, and so it was. Um, a beautiful, sophisticated homebrew setup that uh, we made some beer on, and um, dialing our recipe down, and and actually trying to take Grisette and make an inviting, you know, flavorful, full beer that's four percent without the addition of oak, you know, without the addition of acidity, uh, was fun for me. And then we kind of discuss, discussed that with the uh, brewers, and uh, yeah, we had a good time. We missed our target gravity both days. Um, <laughs> But um, I think we're going to make a good beer nonetheless. It's going to be a strong grisette, um, okay. borderline what today's people would call a saison. Uh, but no, it was it was really good and yeah, relaxing and fun and easy. You oh, know, good. yeah, good. really really nice, very nice. It's not often that you uh, end up uh, underestimating your efficiency by such a large degree and coming in so big. <laughs> yeah, we were getting I think somewhere a little over ninety percent uh, efficiency, which. Obviously, we didn't plan on from the first first day to even the second day, but um, it was it was really cool too to have the the homebrewers in the group being like, "Oh, let's do this, let's do this." Like, this is what I do at home, and I was like, "This is great." I want to hear from you as well because I don't do this. I don't. Right. We don't brew on a pilot system right now, um, and it's been a while since I've brewed on a small system, and even then, it wasn't this sophisticated. So, uh, I think that was great on their side feeling way more involved than I was trying to trying to get them as involved as possible as possible. But yeah, it was good. So when you say you were a home brewer, you made the jump straight into professional brewing from home brewing. Um, didn't attend brewing school in any official sense like that. Um, tell me about that experience of, uh, you know, how, how did you decide, Hey, I'm just going to go do this for a living and convince someone to hire me, even though I've never brewed in a, uh, a commercial brewing environment before. Yeah. Um, I, I, my, my experiences before working at a brewery, um, I tried to diversify myself, and, it, and initially it wasn't even a plan to be a brewer, but I was selling wine at the time, and I was a home brewer, and I had bartended before, and actually left selling wine to manage a beer bar. So the idea was maybe when a new brewery opened up or a new brewery was looking for somebody, I could possibly jump right into the position of the everything guy. Um, I could help run your tasting room. I could help do sales if need be, and but I really want to brew. So um, I was very fortunate to go straight from home brewing to um, a small brewery called Perennial Artisan and Ales when they were opening in St. Louis. Um, I did stalk them, and I did bug them a lot for a job, don't get me wrong, but I did get the job without any um, professional experience, no um, internships, no, um, you know, schooling professional brewing school which i don't recommend any of that for anybody you should definitely definitely do something <laughs> like one of those sure, to sure. make yourself more appealing for an employer but um i was very 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 fortunate to to get hired but it was you know i, I sold myself as hey i can do sales i can do bartending i really want to brew and here's my home brew and um um taste it and see what you think and go and go that way but yeah i jumped straight in but you had an unconventional background and that you had had a, an undergraduate an undergraduate degree in a science field and a graduate degree, a master's in business, mm-hmm. if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting mix to, to come into the world of brewing with. Yeah, my degree is actually in chemistry. Um, was not intended to be a brewer at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I found beer much later. Not much later, but I the, the passion to become a professional brewer was much later. Um, I have always liked the sciences. Uh, I've always done well on the science side. Um, 
if you were to ever read any of our labels or any of our blog posts that are not written correctly, you'll know why. Like my wife edits everything, and and it's not that I'm bad at it. I'm just I, sure, I I'm sure. not. You know my my. You know those people. They, they're great writers, and then you know the people that are just math. They get, and I get math and science and um, chemistry. So that was my degree. Um, I thought I was going to be a pharmacist for a while and worked in a pharmacy for one summer and said, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but I continued on with my degree in chemistry. And so um, I didn't want to become a chemist. So I stayed in school and got my master's in business because I've always had an interest in, in business, um, you know, running my own business. I've had a couple of small, like you could call businesses um, back, you know, when I was younger doing eBay sales or, you know, whatever, <laughs> little things. Sure, but, sure. But yeah, um, Chemistry fortunately found its way into my life later on when I started brewing and definitely made the more complicated aspects of brewing that not every brewer addresses, especially on the small scale, very easy for me to pick up on. Um, and so I'm very glad. And then definitely doesn't hurt that I have an MBA mm -hmm. and my wife and I own our own business now. So right. there's some things that I still retain from that and still paying off that education, but uh, at least I'm using it. Sure, sure. <laughs> What'd your parents say after you came out with an MBA and decided to go uh, manage a beer bar and then become a brewer? Yeah, so that, that uh, has to be a different expectation. It, uh, you know, I I was I was paying my own bills on that side, and uh, they they've always known me as uh, pretty bullish. You know, when I get an mm -hmm. idea, I'm just going to do it. And so at first, I was selling wine, so you know, a, a, what could have been a career, and you know, yeah. paying down debt and everything and one day realized i just don't like this and karen my wife actually got her got the first job in the beer industry she was um bartending at a beer bar in st louis and met um a regional sales manager from goose island and so she was the first one and she became the goose island rep for the area and she was one of the first brewery reps in the st louis market um you know now it's commonplace you go to right, a market and go there's right. every brewery has a rep but she was like really the first brewery rep in missouri at that time and you know, I was like, I'm getting into brewery sales. You know, I wanted to get in the sales side and left my job at doing wine sales to work at a beer bar and uh, later discovered that I wanted to like, no, how about I brew? Actually, kind of tired of sales. It's not right. my not my gig. How about I make the beer? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of folks who are home brewers and, uh, you know, everyone asks the question, um, you know, can you jump straight from home brewing into professional brewing or should I start a brewery? As a home brewer, you know, again, the question is, uh, are you really ready for the business piece of it? Um, but but you become an object lesson for a lot of folks who might say, uh, no, you have to, you know, you need to go take these routes, work for other folks and, and, and whatnot until you get there. Um, and, and, you know, you did the opposite. You went straight into, you know, from home brewing uh, and you did that and you brought recipes to perennial that, that you know came from your home brewing days mm -hmm. um and some of those recipes have turned into beers that are pretty big classics these days uh well respected highly sought after and uh you think that's a that has anything to do with those homebrew roots and uh, some of that experimentation or uh definitely um um you know as a homebrewer experimenting you, you you take a lot of risks and um fortunately whenever i started perennial whenever we would scale up a recipe, there was no cutting corners. Like the recipes, the, the recipes look funny on paper as far as what most production breweries would ever do. Yeah. Because it's just like, this is inefficient. This doesn't, you know what I mean? It's just, right. this is going to be hard. It's going to be a long day. How about we make tweaks here, cut this here? We didn't do that. And you know, that's, uh, that's a, uh, something to say about Phil and, you know, perennial when we were bringing, bringing in some of these recipes and, and, you know, Abraxas and Sump and, you know, those barrel aged versions of that came from that. Um, came from just homebrews, um, and yeah, they're not a model of efficiency, but it speaks <laughs> for themselves, you know, later in flavor, and and that's why I think there's not a lot of other beers out there like that because if if people don't start maybe on the small scale where they're just taking crazy risks and they only start maybe in a larger brewery or brew pub, they they'll never push things that far, right. and then they never will can create the flavors that are maybe that out of the ordinary. And, and, and that's what then thus makes the beer different, for sure. What are some of those things? Uh, I guess low efficiencies and huge grain bills, long, long boils. Yeah, just a pain in the butt to make. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. you, you, you hate, you. It, it's, it's, it's maybe one thing if, if you know, I was at the time the head brewer and so I was writing the recipes and then I was the one that had to do them. Right. It's another thing to maybe write the recipe and hand it to somebody else and go, ha ha, you know, have fun, make this. You know, it, 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 it may not 
it may just may never translate very well to where the the brewer who's handed this asinine recipe has to be like the one that has to be there for 18 hours brewing it where i was the one doing it because i wanted to see it through and i wanted to make sure that the way it was is the way it will become and and yeah that's that's part of it as well um yeah i don't know so at the time, uh, while you're head brewer for Perennial, you also uh, you know, concocted this idea for a, a side project, uh, which you launched within Perennial or within the same facility of Perennial. Is it was it an alternating proprietorship or? Uh... Yeah. So um, I actually never really concocted the idea for a side project. It wasn't oh, like no. a, a thought of like, hey, I'm going to start a brewery inside of here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wanting to make a lot more funky beer and experiment a lot even more. And perennial experiments a ton, sure. um, even more than I was allowed to do at perennial as the head brewer. I just kept wanting to do new things, and right. it goes back to me kind of being bullish. Like I said, I just want to do it, and I'm going to sure. do it. Sure. So I started purchasing like when perennial would buy barrels, I'd buy an extra barrel or two myself and buy my own rack, and then on my own time, you know, put some wort in barrels and do things myself on the back. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually you end up with a good volume of beer <laughs> that you're kind All of right. like, what are we going to do with this? Um, and I had been bugging perennial about, you know, bottle conditioning and making some more funky beer and just kind of experimenting more. And I think, um, you know, this goes to say again, like the Phil saw the fact that I, even though we were doing a bunch of stuff, maybe I was even getting bored already, you know, and, right. and they, you know, were doing everything they could to like, well, how do we facilitate this? What can, what can we do to, to make this fun and exciting again? And they kind of came up with the idea of like, well, you know, you can just use our license and we'll create like a little sub, you can create a sub brand you know, or sub idea and just release the beers through here. So that way, at least my work wasn't going to waste. You know, what is, what is somebody going to do with 60 gallons of beer? I, (laughs) I could never drink a whole five gallon batch of homebrew, you know? Right. Um, Right. So let's at least do something with them, but they really weren't perennial beers. They were things I was doing at after hours or before hours or whatever. And that idea kind of idea side project started and, um, it took off. It took off (laughs) very aggressively and, quicker than we ever can have anticipated so yeah. um yeah i would come in on the weekends brew experiment play around and then i started buying more barrels making more beer and then renting more space from them <laughs> and then making more beer and i think eventually they probably were like oh my god we created a monster i didn't maybe we didn't mean for this to become that big right but um it just took off and um yeah and side project was was born out of that and, mm-hmm. and Fortunately, people have enjoyed the beers and my weird take on beers since day one. So, at what point did you decide to split it off from Perennial and uh, take it in a different direction and uh, become an independent business? Yeah, so I, I had started looking for like maybe new barrel space or something. the The original thought was maybe we would continue to, you know, make wort at Perennial off their system and move it to another barrel warehouse and then still sell everything, sell everything back through, you know, perennial tasting room or what. We're just trying to figure out where we're going. But perennial, perennial was growing. I was growing. Um, you know, there's, there's, it was just a lot going on. And we finally had that kind of discussion where I kind of went back to a, almost like a part-time role at perennial, kind mm-hmm. of just consultant base on, on their barrel program, just helping obviously. Cause I was there every day still, cause all my stuff was there too. Right. Um, but everybody else would implement the, the process, if you will, like let's, they would rack the barrels. They would spend the time doing that. Cause that's tedious and, and time consuming where I would just kind of consult on that. And you know, so that was like step one, if you will, phase one. And then the next phase kind of was like, how about, you know, side project was being successful where I could actually maybe just take all my, um, salary away from perennial. If they would let me, you know, just, even consult less, if you will, like, sure. and, and ha- completely be free, you know, uh, uh, needing my time to do whatever I needed to. So it was a kind of a gradual phase. It was mm-hmm. never like black and white, right. um, until was it the very first day of 2016 was like my last, so the last day of 2015 was my last day at perennial. Um, even though I still had beer there and barrels, mm-hmm. but, um, last day employed by them where it just, it had to kind of happen, you know, like where, what was I going to do a side project? We kind of created this, this small behemoth, you know, not a very big brewery by any means, but enough for one person to handle. And was I just going to let it, you know, kind of just stay where it was or, and like I said, I'm a bullish person. I'm like, let's do some more things. I want to make right. more beer. I want a bigger facility where I can make more barrel beer and experiment more. And, um, that was kind of when we had to part ways and I found, you know, a space in Maplewood and started planning the build out of a brewery and not a big one, but a pretty small brewery 
but uh, we did 270 barrels last year and we might do 800 this year and about as much as we'll probably be able to do out of our facility and i'm really happy about that interesting 800 barrels and there's a sustainable business out of that yeah um we we grew grew slowly if you will we grew grew at a good pace we we never went to a bank begging for a ton of money that we couldn't pay back you know we we're not debt ridden um we 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 grew with our market with with what people wanted um we never um just decided well let's start making 100 barrel batches of all this stuff and and figuring out how to pay for it in the next 20 years like no i don't want that stress right. i don't want that stress and so we've just taken our time and so we we yeah we as far as a business model we're different than what i was ever taught because we really don't have any debt and we just kind of are if the market slows a little bit we'll slow a little bit we don't have to do anything we don't have to sell beer to pay off banks and people we don't have right, any investors right. it's just karen and i and that's just kind of our business model on that so we can enjoy it as opposed to stress about it and i'm not a big stress i don't like stress yeah it does seem like uh you know quite a few brewers today that are bring similar styles of beer and are kind of in the similar philosophical mode as you are who are choosing their own quality of life yeah. over simple growth and profit that uh enjoying company being able to travel being able to you know to hang with other brewers and, and spend those experiences uh, are valuable you know pieces of life more more so than just uh, stacking another million on top of another million yep and and exactly because you know look at we're up here in maine for a couple of days you know enjoying enjoying brewing small batches with you know enthusiasts and other professional brewers and home brewers and it, it i can get away you know we're not worried about the next release you know right. we're worried about when the beer's ready and what's the best beer we can possibly make and i think that's a for a sour producer it, it has to be that way yeah if if we were you know if we we're debt ridden and we had to make a payment to a bank next month on a huge loan. Who's to say I'm going to let a beer sit longer that could really need it, you know? And the, we, we don't even really have a packaging schedule because the beer, I don't know when the beer is going to be ready. You know, we, we have an idea, I have an idea, but that's could be a gap of two months, you know, and that's not, that's, that's a big gap. So it's, it's very different for our production. Um, thought process as a compo- as opposed to um most breweries if you will right and um and maybe hopefully in the long run just focusing on quality quality of life us being happy if we're happy we're going to make better beer really mm-hmm. um we're enjoying what we're doing more then that will be our sustainable model right in the long run hopefully to fill in some of the gaps you know you've told me before that uh you know side project as a brand means every all the beer touches wood and all the beer is made by you mm-hmm. and those are the two kind of brand pillars of, of side project but as you say some of that beer is going to take its own time and do its own thing uh, in the meantime out of this new brewery that you've built in, in maplewood you bring a few other kinds of beers and you've uh, created a different brand for that yeah so um we karen and i wanted to create something inside of side project and um it's a it's a brewery called shared um, it is actually owned by Karen, myself, and our brewers, and mm-hmm. Tim Botchen, our um, designer, because it's a lot of work for him as well. You know, every time we make a new beer, he has to design a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. we wanted to, um, you know, being small as we are, you you don't you can't just walk in day one and say, hey guys, we're gonna pay you everything you're worth. Like we want to do that, so we we have to pay you as much as we possibly can and be smart about it at the same time. But here is how Karen and I, if we ever wanted to make more money or, or figure out about retirement stuff, is it's growing a business. And so let's make you part of Shared. And you're, you're the chef. You know, we, we see restaurants where the restaurateur owns everything, but the chef is really who does everything. So that chef leaves, and then that restaurant goes to crap, and that chef right. starts his own place. How do we facilitate that? You know, almost how do we facilitate a side project inside of side project, which is, gets it's really inception-based. Right exactly. There, wow. But... So we, we created something else. And, and, you know, I like drinking Pilsners. Um, sure. I drink, I like drinking non-barrel-aged beer sometimes. So I, I also wanted this kind of project to start because I wanted to experiment with making other beers as well. But that's not Side Project. You know, Side Project doesn't have um, a hazy IPA. That's not Side Project. Right. Um, 
and I wanted people, we wanted people to know that, that this is a different mindset. This is Tommy, which is one of our brewers who I worked with at Perennial Artisan Ales, who left to come work with us, and Brian. Um, so Tommy Manning and Brian Ivers, and Brian Ivers is Karen's brother, so my brother-in-law, but he also was a brewer at Goose Island for a couple years, so, and an electrical engineer. So the guy's very, yeah, they, these, these guys know what they're doing. So it wasn't that we just opened our doors up and said, we're gonna start a business to strangers who are talented. It was, these are friends, this is family, um, we trust them. We love them. They're amazing brewers as well. And how do we get you involved as well? How do how does this business our size mm-hmm. pay you well enough? And this is it. We give them part of you know the profits off the batches, stuff like that. So I think that's another reason why some people grow is the fact that they want to. We're going to continue to give raises to our employees, and we're trying to create a good business now. It's right. a whole different mindset. But how do you continue to get raises to people over the next 10, 15, 20 years if they stay there the whole time without continuing to grow your sure, business and sure. selling more and afford, you know, how do you do that? And we don't want to scare people off, you know, but we also right. don't want to grow outside of this, you know. So if they grow shared, they grow their, you know, income and, you know, we, we're just trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out this whole new business model kind of thing. Sure, sure. And if they ever leave, the idea is it's called shared. So if they ever do leave and they both want to leave one day and start their own brewery, anything they create, any beer, any beer name, any recipe, it's theirs. It's not ours. Hmm. It's not side projects less shared. It's it's. I'm not keeping your recipe. That's not fair to them. And so we want them to take that, and we want them to go. You know, brew it again. It's yours. You know, just because hmm. you worked for us doesn't mean I own it. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're that's the idea behind that too, and because both of them want that, so we want to facilitate their maybe um, uh, just experimentation as well their recipe formulation and, and go so it's different but we're small and we can do a lot of different things yeah in, in now, is that an equity stake that they have in shared or is that a profit sharing it's based? profit sharing based right now okay if they stay long enough and decide hey i'm this i may never leave now let's make it equity based you know hmm. let's let's make you part of this company so right. when it comes time to retire or however we're going to move on or we haven't thought of succession plans yet or all that stuff, but sure. we should. We're, we should be a smart business as well. Right. Make great beer and be a smart business. Um, and we will do that. We didn't just hand over equity on for day one, but definitely right. profit sharing right now. Yeah. You know, that's uh, it becomes a predictor that we see a lot out in the beer market. Um, some of the companies that have the hardest time ultimately retaining staff and being successful are ones that are not brewer-owned. Mm-hmm. And uh, that brewer ownership, um, you know, now, it's not a guarantee that a brewery is going to make great beer or be successful, but there are certainly a correlation between breweries that are brewer-owned and uh, you know the quality of the product and their, their focus on the quality of that product, which tends to then extend into success in the marketplace. Um, you know, and, and you know, I've had that conversation with a number of brewers who uh, have uh, you know, left the places where they were at mm-hmm. because you know, they, they didn't own a stake of it. And uh, the folks that started the breweries, they're, they're not brewers themselves. It becomes hard to kind of build you know, that, that relationship, not having an equity stake. And the person, or the person who doesn't have an equity stake but is responsible for the product it seems like a strange way you know, for some of these breweries to build, build their businesses. I agree. And I think that was more possibly of the old way. You know, I think right. in today's in today's world, there's breweries taking definitely a more not even breweries, businesses taking a more a newer look at at, at how how do you get people involved in the actual business themselves. Sure, and sure. you know, big businesses, you know, it's it's stock. You know, it's 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 you've done such a great job creating these things for stock, but breweries aren't that way. They don't have stock, but how do you how do you reward and retain these people? Um yeah. You, you can't just expect that a small brewery where the owners end up making millions and they have a brewmaster or head brewer making, you know, not uh, right, nothing that they're right. ever going to really retire off of even because brewery, a lot of brewers aren't still well paid. Right. And and but that person's really responsible for everything you're known for. Like that's, you know, it's a weird. Sure. It's sure. a weird shuffle. And so then business takes over as opposed to the idea of beer and brewing where this is the talent and you now are telling them they're not worth it technically right so how do you retain that and so we're we're trying to at least let and we know these guys want to leave we told them to be very open with us and yeah, yeah. We're, we're trying to while they're at least there um i think and and they're they're gonna make technically good bonuses if you will over and we pay them out monthly mm-hmm. um on what the sales were and you know their their um their their cut 
and um, I think it's helping. I think they're happy, and they yeah. tell me they're happy, and and now people will be like, I want a job there. Like, no, it's a little <laughs> bit different. But you know, this is how we're doing it as a, as a brewery. This one make eight hundred barrels of beer this year, and that includes shared. Oh, that does include. That shared. includes shared. Oh, that was my next question. Yeah, that includes shared. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's at least how we're doing it now and it's working yeah. very well and i think we're gonna continue for for a while at least for the now, now you're even doing canned beers out of shared mm-hmm. we are so um brian and tommy love some hops i'm i'm getting better with hops and um we've been experimenting around with a lot of the new hop varieties and and hop techniques and stuff and it's been a lot of fun mm-hmm. because to me it's it's regression back to not knowing what i'm even doing and yeah. you know, it's been a while since i've got to do that um i have a pretty good grasp on our side project beers and so this is fun where it's like i don't know how we're going to do this today let's you know or how we're going to do this tomorrow let's figure it out and the best way to get you know those hoppy beers in people's hands are you know proper packaging first and foremost and making sure we're doing a proper procedure all the way into that point and cans work the best for us we have a mobile canner comes in that does a killer job yeah and um you know we test our beer all the way through for do's and doing everything we possibly can um to make if we're going to make any kind of style for you, we're going to do it the best we can, even though yeah. we're tiny and we're not an IPA house, right. but here's our IPA. And I promise we tried really hard on it. So yeah, the, uh, the hoppy beers, our hoppy cans have been going very well. So yeah. they usually last a day. Um, and that's about it. And it's, we're making 20 barrel batches, which net for us and our dry hopping rates anywhere from 13 to 15 barrels. <laughs> so we're losing quite a bit of beer, which I don't know how you guys out there that make only IPAs. I don't know how you're doing it, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad we have the side project beers on the other side that, yeah. you know, really are, are what our bread and butter are. So. Have you tried uh, the lupulin powder cryo hops to, uh, to help yeah. up that yield? Not yet. Um, not yet. And actually want to. Um, mm-hmm. we, we stocked up on, right before we opened, um, I stocked up on enough hops from, fortunately, from friends, you know, other mm. brewery friends that have extra hops. And, and it seems like actually hops are available now, kind of, you know, right. except for the super super special hops um so we stocked up in a lot of hops and we've been just using those right now but yeah the cryo powder something we'll probably play with at some point for sure we just haven't yeah. done it yet you know i guess with 800 barrels you don't have to do a lot of contracting uh it's no. pretty easy to find that on the spot market yeah. Yeah. we're going to continue to spot market and slash friends you know like people at the end of the year going oh god i got 300 extra pounds like i'll take two boxes of 80 pounds. <laughs> you know like we just don't use a lot that's that's mm-hmm. that's a good with with us making maybe one hoppy beer every other month we'll probably right. eventually get to one a month so about 12 releases a year and it's it's fun and we're learning we're definitely learning a lot sure. about hops and in their expression and and uh our dry hopping processes and different yeast strains and their interactions with and stuff like that. So it's yeah. fun though. But yeah, they're going in Brian and Tommy are killing it. Tommy just released, um, his first double IPA, uh, this Saturday while we were up here actually called Tommy fresh right. and it's a parks and rec, um, uh, parks and rec, uh, uh, one of the sayings on parks and rec or whatever. And I, I'm not, hip on pop culture pop culture but uh a lot of people got it and so it's cool yeah. that's one of the fun things too is shared you know we can have quote unquote a little more fun you know not necessarily right. like, not that side project's not fun but we can goof around a little bit right with right. with the shared stuff and it's been a lot of it's been great what was the genesis of your interest in mixed culture wood aged uh, wild fermentation uh, uh, uh you know make spontaneous beers necessarily but uh uh, you've definitely cultured native bugs and uh, microflora. Um, what was the genesis of that? How, how did you decide, uh, you know, as many years ago as you did, to to start making beers like this? Um, yeah, um, it selfishly, it's almost the best way to put it. Like we in in the Midwest, and especially in Missouri, there wasn't sour beer that was available. Hmm. Um, Karen and I travel a lot, and when we'd go out to like Colorado or the West Coast, you if you went to the good beer bars, you could find Russian River. You know, you could you could find Russian River maybe on draft even, and I was jealous. I was like, because you know, Vinny and Natalie are amazing people, and yep. fortunately, over us making sour beer now, like we know them, and and it's been really cool to to admire their business model as well. Like, yep. And I think you and I even talked about that earlier today. Um, but you could get sour beer, you could get it, and anything that was sour in um, Missouri, um, outside of La Folie, which I absolutely adore and love as well. Um, was a special release per se and it was gone immediately you know it was the go get it today or it's gone and so i couldn't drink it and i loved i loved fell in love with sour beer and that's probably a lot for my wine love as well you know a lot of wine drinkers will um, tend to gravitate towards sour funky wild beer 
So I selfishly was like, I'm going to make my own then. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my own. Um, and so I started trying to just figure out what I would do. If this was, if I was going to make funky sour beer, how would I do it? Um, Saison seemed to fit. Um, you know, Saison can be very Chardonnay, white wine, expressive. And that was what I wanted to go for. And, you know, then you start researching how was old Saison made. And it was, you know, sometimes even blended with Lambic or it was still, you know, inoculated with the local microflora, but they hopped it to try to reduce acidity, but it was still a small beer and it was tart and, and you're just like ideas start flowing, you know, so how would we do this? What would we do it? And so as a home brewer, I had already, you know, isolated some funky bugs cultures, um, that I'd been playing around with for the years. And so once I grew into a professional brewery, my ideas for perennial, a lot of them were actually funky stuff too. And it got outside of the realm of, I'm sorry. Got outside of the realm of what I could convince them to let me make, and that's how Side Project started. So I was like, I want to make this. I want to make this. This is funky. This is different. This is sour, um, and and yeah. So it just kind of grew from there. You know, it grew from it wasn't available. Yeah, sure. Were there other influential beers that you'd tasted in, in your travels other than Russian River that just said, hey, you know, this is this is the stuff that yeah. uh, that clicks with me and my palate? Well, there wasn't a lot at the time, not mm-hmm. gonna lie. And so it was my early sour beers that I would always try to trade for because I was a big trader too. I mean, you can't make good beer if you can't if you never drink good beer. Um, was really a lot of the Russian River stuff, and mm-hmm. then the old Court and Cage La Folies, um, and those were the the initial things. Um, mm-hmm. I remember back in the day the old um, was it old Captain Lawrence stuff like Rosa Umeron right. and um, like the Ithaca like Ithaca Brut and Le Bleu. Um, which are different takes for sure. And sure. Um, those were like the early sour beers I probably ever, and Red Poppy, loved mm. Red Poppy. And right. I got to get Red Poppy. Um, and, and so, yeah, whenever, at least it was opening your, your my eyes to other beers. And, you know, Goose Island started making the, the Sour Sisters, the Juliet, Madame Rose, um, and Karen was working for Goose. And I think some of those were like 09, I believe, was when that okay. started. So, um, um, but yeah, that was the, the, kind of the just just trying to find sour beer you know um, and then of course once you find lambic you're, you're kind of screwed you're like all right now all i want to drink you know now all i want to drink is lambic that it can't e- even get um right but that took a while yeah so yeah once the, the i still love that you know the first lambic anybody ever has like this is sour beer and you talk to any lambic producer and you're like sour no no not sour <laughs> beer you know pretend i'm icy's beer I'm like oh well the first time we all drank it it was sour beer yeah Sure. Now, you know, speaking of Lambic, you've uh, engaged in a program to blend beers, you know, in the method that, uh, you know, Goose has blended multi-year blends to achieve uh, both a a deeper flavor uh, complexity as well as, uh, you know, bringing in that brightness from young beer. Um, Tell me a little bit about that, what what your inspiration is behind that. So um, with any, I think, sour producer, uh, funky producer, you have to blend. Um, uh, I, I could never, our beers would not be as good if I wasn't <laughs> focused on blending as much as I am. And I want to almost say that I think I'm a maybe better blender than I am a brewer, just because that's where the magic happens, is, is picking the pieces. But but yes, we've, um, we released a beer this year called Just Blended 2017, and it's a three-year blend. But outside of that, that's almost the only thing it has in common with a goose. Um, it, I've, I've done some, you know, turbid mash, spontaneous, cool shit beers. Nothing's really, outside of very, very small batch stuff that I've released here and there, nothing's really turned out to the level of what I think is side project mm-hmm. and that I would release. So this one is a three-year blend, but every year was inoculated with Missouri bugs um, that I'd caught spontaneously from four years ago, sure, you know? Sure. So, it, but it was selective, you know, it's the right, select, right. It's, it's how our business has gotten where it is, our brewery's gotten where it is, it's selectively harvesting the you know the best barrel makes it to the next four barrels which becomes the best barrel that becomes the next you know eight barrels or however um and it it is a blend of old and new three-year blend of uh one one year was it's it's confusing for most people because i'm like all right one year i did turbine mash but i used pellets the next year i did a step mash but i used aged hops the last year i just did a single infusion mash with pellets and then you know i blended all three years together and then people online are like that's goozy and like if it's not it has actually has nothing to do with the goose at all because it's just a three-year blend if i blended right. three years of stout you wouldn't go goozy <laughs> you know what i mean because it's because sure. well, it's a stout sure. like i get it it's a it's a it's a funky beer that's a three-year blend um and and, and it turned out probably one of the more beautiful beers that i think i've made ever mm. and people have really enjoyed that but yeah i'm getting trying to dig deeper now that we're having older stock 
and I think our younger stock is even more beautiful than ever mm -hmm. because our process is even more honed in now. We have I have my own place. You know, we're it we're brewing on a schedule. You know, not brewing nights and weekends and just kind of on whims and just right. trying to figure out how to make war. Now we're like, let's focus on everything. So um, yeah, they're they're turning out right. I think there's a bottle in your fridge. I think it's 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 a three seven five. Nobody got in those the other night. Oh my goodness! I it's on the top shelf. We'll have to it? dig in. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to show you where right they are. I have so. to pause this and go <laughs> grab it right now. <laughs> no, I think that's an interesting one. I mean, we've had a conversation this year as you know the method goose piece came out that uh, you know Jeffrey and uh, you know has been pushing forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's certainly a question there whether uh, an adherence to a process is more important than the end product that you uh, you know, produce from that. And it does seem like there are folks on different sides of uh, of the, the fence on that one, and that mm -hmm. uh, um, you know both can make great beer, mm -hmm. um, but it seems like making great beer is more important than simply adhering to uh, a rule around some sort of process for you. Uh, yes, absolutely. If, if you just heard my blend, my last blend, like I'm experimenting with processes because my bugs do different things than what would happen in Belgium or in Texas or here in Maine and out, you know, like my bugs do different things and what do they need? And if what they need doesn't adhere to, you know, the method goose lambic, um, um, category, that's, that's okay. It's just, I'm trying to make the best tasting beer and it's still heavy side project. Um, I still do, like I said, I still do turbine mash, cool ship inoculated aged hop beers because those are great pieces for blends for mm. me. I just haven't had any come out yet other than one, um, which we call Vintage 2014, that was really a single, two barrels, two small barrels that we bottled that were good enough, I thought, by themselves to be released as is. And so technically they would have been like Method Lambic. Method Lambic, Method Lambic, however you want to say. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm building pieces. You know, as a blender, sure. you're always building pieces. And we brew a lot of beer where the guys are like, what are we even brewing today? And <laughs> like, it doesn't have a name. We're building a piece. Like, I just have this feeling I want to do this. You know, let's try something new here. Or, you know, just, just random things. And then later, we that's why we have the beer called Pulling Nails, which is a a, a blend of a lot of things. And, and right. it's been a lot of fun to experiment. Or we have like Blended 2017, which is a little more focused of a blend. I knew going in what I was trying to accomplish. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about stouts. You know, you do a lot on the mixed fermentation side, but mm -hmm. uh, you make a couple stouts out there too. Not a, not a whole lot, but uh, <laughs> we, stouts are stouts are a pain in the ass to make. Uh, there's no way around it. Um, at least at our on our the size that we make the, the the size of these beers that that I like to make. Um, I have a sweet tooth. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I also love bourbon. Um, I love whiskey. I love scotch. I love some pretty bold flavors. So we make, I, I make delicate saisons that are 4% up to 15% bourbon barrel aged stouts that see oak for, you know, two plus years. And those stouts, um, I think a lot of people know side project only for stouts. And there's a lot of people know side project only for our fruit sours. And, um, and yeah, I, I, we enjoy, I really enjoy our stouts. They're just a, a really hard to make. So we only have about, about 5% of our production are them. And um, I guess our famous ones are derivation. So we do derivation, um, and every blend is unique. And we treat our stouts just like we would a sour beer. I brew seven or eight different stout recipes, put them in different barrels, age them for different times. And then when we come back and it's time to make a new derivation, it's actually a blend. And it's hmm. not always the same recipe, not always the same barrel. And it's a picking of the best pieces for the puzzle, um, which I don't think any other stout producer is doing. And that may say something to the love that our our fans have for our stouts they're definitely very unique and they're they're definitely side project at the end of the day which i'm happy about yeah and then uh you know you've uh, not shied away from uh, going full pastry stout on some of these with uh... <laughs> no exactly and yeah i love the term pastry stout now um um yeah because you, you know uh, like i mentioned or you mentioned abraxas was one of my homebrew recipes and so it's been something that's been around for for a while now and even before that hunapu you know and um and i think even before that the the variants from goose island you know i'm a midwest guy so we we saw the goose island the the, the original goose island the bear the bourbon county coffee with the black cat espresso the very first year ever that came out I was like that was the best beer i'd ever had at that moment loved it and that's the start of what's next you know okay we can put coffee in this so what can we do next and i don't get too i don't get too extravagant um i do add special ingredients but 
I don't add eight ingredients, you know, and we also try to showcase our base beer. Um, you know, I've not right. shied away from here is derivation and there's no adjuncts guys. This is what happens with beer barrel and time. And I'm not hiding from anything. And, and I want other breweries to do that too. Before I, before you sell me your stout that has 18 adjuncts, can I try the barrel aged version that doesn't have any? And, and, and it is easy to kind of hide some things behind them if, if that's their, their motive. And I, I want more now of a pushback to straight barrel aged stout, but our fans and consumers love the fun fun ingredients, and I love making them. So I, I even said that in our last uh, blog post when we did Derivation 7. It was two years bourbon barrel aged out, and we're having that tonight at the beer dinner. And there's no adjuncts in it at all. But when we released it, we told people, like, hey, in a world where pastry salts and adjuncts are, the, are everything, and I said in quotes, like, I'm as guilty as anybody. I love sure, them. Sure, I want you to drink this, though, and I want you to taste here is vanilla and coconut and almond and you know char and smoke and i didn't add any of those you know that's why we first fell in love with this style you right know? so if if well, let's let's remember that and we'll probably go back that way it's kind of the ipa thing you know where we all got too hoppy for a while and now everybody's going back like i want flavorful hops and i want citrusy hops and i don't want all that bitterness and we might go back to where, like, I don't need marshmallows jammed in my stout. <laughs> I can drink this barrel-aged stout that has notes of marshmallows by just being in a barrel. So. I hope we can get to this point where people can agree to not put the fruit into the IPA anymore and can <laughs> yeah. simply get that fruit flavor out of the hops themselves. Yeah. And we, they're getting there. That, I think that's so. possible. I think there's been a regression on that, hadn't yeah. there? Where it yeah. seemed like every day there was a new fruited IPA, and I think that kind of slowed. Right. Because the guys that are making tasty IPAs don't add fruit. Like, you're doing it so well with just hops. So. God help us. I, I hope that's the future, <laughs> at least for my own sake. But Me too. <laughs> like I said, I, I selfishly make beer for myself. So, uh, yep, I agree. Well, so these derivation stouts that you make, because of the ridiculously small production of, of those stouts, they, they tend to uh, command uh, uh, you know huge premiums on the trading market. Uh, and there's even quite you know some aftermarket sales of those. And I know you've uh, publicly expressed some frustration with mm-hmm. how that that works uh talk a little bit about uh you know about why you don't why, like watching secondary markets and yeah. uh, folks reselling your beer i mean they're obvious is it it is illegal yeah uh, first and foremost <laughs> i mean that's the it is illegal yeah, yeah. it's um yeah i love trading I, lo- I i was like i said i was a beer trader um please trade the beer away i mean if you want yeah. to share it with a friend from across the country please um feel free to trade it um, when it comes to selling, it's tough. Um, like I said, I have a wine background, and if if you had a winery that you were a fan of for years, and their secondary market price just all of a sudden skyrocketed, you know what they're going to do next year? They're going to sell their wine at that secondary market price, and they're going to go to you know a club membership only, and their bottles are now five hundred dollars a bottle when last year they were fifty, but they have this cult following now. And then it scares, it doesn't scare off, but I couldn't afford to pay for that. And I was a supporter of you for years, but all of a sudden now you're popular and you're going to charge astronomical prices for your wine as a business person should, you know, let's get outside the fact of, you know, you're just trying to support your regulars. Um, what's to say that if, if we were a winery as a brewery, I, I would just take all the derivations and sell them online to members for a thousand dollars a bottle. That's just asinine. And, and, but that's where people almost push the market. You know, they're taking what the demand is and the lack of supply and then they're reselling. And, and, and I got out of wine for the student snootiness of it. Like that, that side of the wine where it's like, I can't afford these great wines anymore. And, and there are great wines at even lesser prices. But it just was, it seemed snooty, and it, it didn't like that. I didn't like how it felt. And then there's always that expectation, too. If you're opening up a $500 bottle of wine, you have a $500 expectation. Sure. Now, was that $500 placed on it by the winemaker, who then maybe I trust a little bit more? Or was it placed on it by a secondary person going, look, I have one of 100 bottles. Ha, ha, ha. I charge 500 for it. I don't want somebody to have their first experience with Side Project where they purchased a derivation bottle for $1,200 online going, huh. I really, really like that, but would I pay twelve hundred for it? And like, no, but would you pay thirty-five or forty for it and fifty on site? Like, yeah, of course I would. Then I want that reaction. You yeah. know what I mean? Because that is the reaction. That is what we sell it for. You know, not twelve hundred dollars. So I, I want that people's. You know, people's expectations become jaded when they're when they're opening right. up something like that. And I, I still think they would love it at twelve hundred dollars, but maybe they wouldn't. It's a lot of money. That's, yeah. You know, I I, I don't. I, I, I don't have that kind of money, and so I don't want that to change their perception of our beer, going, huh, 
I, you know, this was great, but you know, it, it, maybe it should have been 200. Well, you know what? I didn't put that price on it. I didn't control that. And, and it's tough to create something and then not control it all the way through right, right to the person's mouth, you know? Um, and that's why we don't distribute. And that's why we sell almost everything on site at our places where it's, I, we can create, we can, we can control that from brewing to your mouth, like every aspect of the, the experience. Um, because I'm maybe anal about that. I don't know. And I think having some of that availability in your own tap room where people know that they can go buy a bottle of that for $50 in your tap room Mm -hmm. might uh, diminish some of those aftermarket sales. Mm -hmm. I mean, rather than spending $1,000 on your bottle, you can buy a plane ticket to to St. Louis and uh, pop over there. For cheaper. Right. For cheaper. For quite a bit. Yeah. Buy a couple of plane tickets. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll have, you know, when we're doing that, if we, we will have cases on site and so we'll do we will do derivation on site usually when we release a new batch for probably two or three weeks you mm. know because because you know the first couple of days are just packed with people want to try it and it's like we make sure that's available you know and yeah. it's cheaper for you to come enjoy it here now i get it you know you're not putting in your cellar not aging it for a couple of years and, and sharing it later i get it but but at least you're drinking it and, and that's why i make the beer and sometimes the beer our beer i want maybe you to drink it i don't package it i don't bottle it till it's ready to drink so i want you to drink it fresh too especially if these beers have been in barrels for two years already i can't promise it's actually going to be better in a year or two i'm sure you know sure. And, and and i get it but with stouts everybody's like oh this is like an age indefinitely like maybe it can't and i like it now so i would really like you to enjoy it now for sure you know you you say that and i, I think you're right like um this age indefinitely idea with barrel aged stouts it, it may be a complete misnomer mm-hmm. um most of mine stay in the refrigerator because uh you know anytime you put it in a barrel as we saw with goose island and, and bourbon county uh there are a lot of bugs out there mm-hmm. we know a little bit about a little bit of them but mm-hmm. there's a whole lot more out there that uh we're starting to discover you know as people do these things with their beer mm-hmm. um, and now we can find lactobacillus that can you know withstand 14 percent alcohol and like how the hell did that thing exist before? <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. And all of a sudden we find it. Exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, that, that creates a risk, especially if you're sitting on a bottle that you paid a thousand dollars for. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't imagine leaving that in, in an unrefrigerated cellar, yeah. um, and wondering what the heck is going to happen to it. Uh, yeah. You know, I can imagine if somebody bought that and spent that on it and something went south with it, they'd be pretty pissed and they'd probably be pissed at you for it. Absolutely. It'd be my fault. You know, it'd be my fault. It's like, I didn't place that but but actually actually it would still be my fault it wouldn't be my fault for a thousand dollars you know it'd be my fault for for the price of the bottle but um yeah there are going to be a heightened level of upsetness with me (laughs) over a thousand bucks over as opposed to like i said a forty dollar bottle or right or or whatever and and so yeah there's there's it's it's that's part of that game it's part of that game you know and but fortunately fortunately if you do get a side project you know bottle we stand behind everything because it's such a small batch i would there's a hundred or 200 bottles of any of our stouts that are out and even floating around. And to say half of those are probably consumed early on. So there's half of that floating around. If somebody had a problem with it, it's like, well, we can take care of this. You know, it's not right. a goose Island issue where there's, I can't imagine how many bottles they had to deal with, which, you know, unfortunately, yeah, one yeah. of my, still one of my, bourbon County stouts, one of my favorite stouts. Love that beer. Every year it comes out, like, give me some. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, well, politics aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all of us who have children hate to have to pick between them. But uh, the beers you make, what are your what are your favorites? Oh, I love this question. Um, it, it's really that's such a, it is really a hard question. I do always try to answer it, but it's a hard question because I am such a small brewery that is focused so much on just each individual project, if you will. That it's not like it's not like we had one takeoff that I continue to pump out for for to pay the rent just because you know like we only make specialty beer if you will it is right. that but I, I also i always have a soft spot in my heart for fuzzy you know fuzzy really put us on the map for our fruited sours um we wanted gold at fobab up in chicago um it was you know the the name even wasn't that thought out you know fuzzy's kind of whimsical for side project if you yeah. looked at other names and but it went it once it took off it at, at at fobab you're like well we can't change the name now um so i always always have a soft spot in my heart saison du fermier if i had like a flagship that might be it as well because that was our very first saison release yeah kind of once again also put us on the map for our saison production um it's you know a spelt saison fermented in agent chardonnay barrels um it's a traditional barrel fermented beer with our bugs it's kind of what we are that is what it is what side project kind of is behind on that um 
and as far as you know maybe my favorite I, I I love drinking beer to pay like as you you beer to pay and grisette are two of my favorites and it's I think you're just saying that to me too, I am uh, I am no, no. but like I said beer to pay and grisette <laughs> if you ask anybody like I drink more of those of our own beer because they're four percent right. they're they're what they're meant to be they're exactly what they're meant to be and and you can't say it's not a favorite if I drink more of it than anything else right you know um so those, you know, and then I, I, I love every one of our stouts. I love all our yeah. barley wine. You know, I, I love all of our sour beers. I, do, I really do. It's really hard to pick one. It's just a matter of what each one's done for me. So maybe that's selfish too. Like, thanks, Fuzzy. Thanks, Dude for me. You know, you put us on the map on these things. You know, thanks, Derivation. You know, but, uh, but I do enjoy all of them. And What's the next beer that you're excited to brew? Oh, excited to brew? So that's, brew is one thing, release is another because you know oh. we brew something now, it may not come out for two years. Oh, goodness, you know? that's some delayed gratification. It is, um, but we're getting ready to rebrew Langst. So mm-hmm. Langst was our bourbon barrel aged um, Adam beer, which right. I'm really excited for. I thought that just turned out absolutely beautifully. Um, it really, really great beer. Um, it's more to style than a lot of our other beers, mm-hmm. honestly, and um, I think that it's just a beautiful look into what bourbon barrel aging can do to other styles and especially like these little more obscure styles that not everybody's really familiar with. And it's been fun to educate people kind of on that. And obviously it's a nod towards Adam, you know, the Adam beer of sure. hair, of the dog, which, you know, Alan makes just awesome multi beers and I like some malt too. So, um, really, really fun beer. So we're going to re-brew that. Um, I'm trying to think what else we're, we're, I'm trying to go also on the brewing schedule. Actually, we don't, we don't schedule a lot of things out. I don't schedule a lot of things out because it's kind of like, what can we do? When can we do it? When do we have barrels? When do we have oak open? Um, but we're getting ready to re-release uh, Fence Row, our black raspberry sour, which um, is really exciting because a lot of people it tends to be one of their favorite ones, even though it's mm. been such a small release. And this one's finally going to be a larger release where people can get it. So um, that's kind of a fun beer on the horizon for at least release wise. So I'll have to send you some for sure. Oh, fantastic. Cool. Well, I think that's all I've got. Thank cool. you, Corey, for joining me on uh, the podcast here, Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Uh, again, coming from uh, beautiful Spruce Point Inn in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Uh, thanks for joining us for the event. Thanks for brewing with uh, with the crew, and uh, we're gonna have a fantastic dinner this evening. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Always, always. Thanks, Corey. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.